Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Quick, think of a famous magician. Dimes to donuts, you just thought of Harry Houdini. Though it's been almost a century since his death, Houdini still occupies a prime place in the cultural imagination, and my guest today explains why in his book, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. His name is Joe Posnanski, and we begin our conversation with Houdini's childhood, how he mythologized it and carved a path out for himself from the desire to not be like his father. We then discuss Houdini's early days as a magician, the trick he honed that helped make his name, and the outsized importance of that name in his fame and legacy. We then explore how escape artistry became Houdini's calling card, and why it resonated so much for the public. We get in the way Houdini brought in athletes' physicality and mindset to his performance and how the difference between magic and escape artistry can be described as the difference between the impossible and the amazing. From there, we turn to the fact that Houdini was and wasn't interested in money, his insatiable ambition and drive for fame, and how the turn he took later in life towards debunking spiritualism kept him in the public eye. We end our conversation with why some modern magicians downplay Houdini's talent while he yet remains an enduring cultural icon amongst the public. After the show's over, check out the show notes at awim.is slash Houdini. All right, Joe Posnaski, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So you are a sports writer, but you've also written a biography of Harry Houdini and his impact on our culture. What led a sports writer to write a biography about this famous magician? That's a, it's a good question, one that I ask myself all the time. I, I think for me, it began, as as many things do, with sports. I, I was approached about writing a book about Babe Ruth. I had done, I think this was my fifth book, and my previous four were all sports books. And, you know, there was uh, sort of this feeling that maybe I should try to take on this big biography, that this was, you know, maybe the next step for me. And so I was approached about doing this book about Babe Ruth, and and I had to say it did not interest me at all. I, I just felt like that was well-covered ground, and there was a, another book in the works at the time by a friend of mine, Jane Levy. So I, I it wasn't it wasn't something that interested me, but I I still thought about it, and I thought, well, if I did do a Babe Ruth book, what would it be about? And what interests me about Ruth. It ended up being the same exact thing that interests me about uh, Harry Houdini. It is that he's still with us in, in so many ways, that people still think about him, talk about him. He's considered the greatest of all time by many people. I'm talking about Babe Ruth. And and so that interests me. Why why is that? Um, we, we don't really feel that way about many things from the 1920s, many people from the 1920s. And so I... I kind of came up with this this thought in my mind about wonder and you know how much we crave it even in today's time and I thought I I'd, I'd like to write that book that book sounds interesting to me but I don't think Ruth is the right guy to do it and I've been sort of this uh very behind the scenes magic fan for for many years and I thought you know this book should be about Harry Houdini uh, who better represents my thoughts here on somebody who survives, thrives a hundred years, you know, or so after his death, people still talk about him. People still know him. People still consider him the greatest. And you know, he's he's just in the news every day in some form or another. And so I thought that's the story I want to tell. If I can tell this story about Harry Houdini and why we still care about him. All right. So Houdini is obviously a character that's larger than life. He's become a metaphor 
almost for lots of different things. Sure. So it's kind of hard to unpack like, okay, what's the real Harry Houdini, right? Like what's the story, what's the myth and what is the actual Harry Houdini? So let's talk about like what is childhood? Like what do we know about Houdini's childhood? And were there glimpses when he was a boy that he would become this icon in like Western culture? It's it's really hard to say because so much of what we know about his childhood we only learned after the fact. It was not the childhood he ever talked about. Uh, Harry Houdini was insistent on never being really associated with the character that he was before he named himself Harry Houdini, right? He was Eric Weiss. That was his birth name. He came to America when he was four years old. He was brought over and ended up, ended up in Appleton, Wisconsin. His father was the first rabbi at the temple in Appleton before losing his job. And his childhood is essentially very, very bleak. It's a family that had no money that was really running away from, from, you know, people collecting rent and, 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 uh, and food, you know, for entire, his entire childhood, essentially. He ran away from home when he was 12 and he worked very, very hard to cover up that part of his life. Uh, he wanted Harry Houdini to be this larger-than-life character, like you say, and that was very important to him from the very start. So he created this mythology about Houdini, who was born in America, who who had this mystical ability to escape from things, even as a boy who who you know stole his mother's apple cake when uh, when he was uh, you know just barely a toddler. Even though she locked it up, he figured out how to get into the lock, and and you know these were the myths that that he told about himself again and again and again. And so you know there are stories about him. Being interested in becoming an entertainer, he worked for a brief time with a circus. He probably ran away from home at 12 to join the circus. So it seems like that there was definitely this, this idea of performing in front of people was something that I think was always with him. But I don't know that we could really look at his childhood if we see his true childhood and, and see what he was going to become. I mean, he definitely created the, the person that is Harry Houdini. And, you know, something that I thought was interesting, it wasn't until like the 1970s that they finally figured out he wasn't born in Appleton, Wisconsin, that he was born in Budapest. Uh, that's, that's right. That's how pervasive the myth was. Like he was able to convince so many people that he was like, well, it's true though. Harry Houdini was born in Appleton, Wisconsin. Eric Weiss was born in Budapest. <laughs> that's right. No, that's exactly, you, you You said it exactly right. It's it's interesting. There were There were really it was not something people felt like they even needed to check, right? I mean, who would who would lie about where they were born and and why would you? Especially once you achieved the the international worldwide fame of Harry Houdini, what difference does it make, right? But for Houdini it was so important that that the you when you traced back his life, you trace back to this all-American boy, this all-American childhood. He was not ashamed of his of the family being poor. He would talk about that some, but he never talked about being born, you know, being an immigrant. He never talked about, you know, not having this sort of American childhood that people could recognize. That was that was so important to him. And you're right, for for many, many years, there was actually, uh, as I write about in the book, in the 1970s, there was a, a committee put together by a magic organization that spent a year looking into him. They called it the Houdini Birthplace Committee, and they literally spent a year looking into where Harry Houdini was born, finding insurance papers and 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 wills and and all these other things to fully say 
that he was born in Budapest and not born in in the United States. And that's you're you know 50 years after his death, so it was pervasive, and and it was it was really important to Houdini to make it that way. Well, let's uh, put Houdini on the therapist couch and talk about his influence, the influence his father and mother had on him throughout his life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I mean, and, and we are we are playing a little bit of therapist, and and Houdini has has always intrigued therapists, particularly because of the the very very close relationship he had with his mother, which was even in his time very famous. You know, he would he would call his mother his his sweetheart, and and you know the most important woman in the world to him, even after he had been married to Bess for many years. So that has been you know that's pretty well covered ground. I mean, it is no question that that Houdini basically wanted to create his success in large part to support his mother, to make his mother proud, to achieve these things that he felt like his father never did for her. And and so that is, that is interesting, but I've always been, you know, at least since writing this book, I've been at least as, as interested in, in the, you know, what his father's impact was. His father, as I mentioned, was a rabbi and, and, you know, was, uh, was the first rabbi in Appleton, Wisconsin. So there was there was some success there, but it, it it was really fleeting. And he spent the rest of his life after he was let go trying to find work, and he was very unsuccessful. I, I mean, he he tried to be you know various things. He tried to be you know many things as a rabbi. He tried to you know to to do all kinds of. He sold tried to sell Jewish books and and various other things, but also worked in factories. I mean, he he was always. He was kind of a drifter when it came to trying to find work. And I don't know that it was anything other than bad luck, bad timing, you know, being in the wrong place. I don't know that it was something that that related to him not, you know, having the ambition. It just seemed like he was defeated by life. And for me, that is really interesting when you look at Houdini, because Houdini, as he grew older, came to represent, in my mind, the exact opposite of his father. He always found work, and he always was fighting for money, and he always was was pushing to support his mother, and he was always, I think, afraid of becoming, in any way, shape, or form, what his father was. And, and so I've I've always thought, even though he he would say very respectful things about his father, he he would talk about how his father was a uh, was the smartest person he ever knew, and and the greatest writer he'd ever knew, and all these other things. I think the way he lived his life is pretty direct as opposition to the way his father had lived. It's an archetypical story. Then, in a lot of you see that in a lot of famous great men, they're just sure. basically trying to be the opposite of their dad. Well, so Houdini, he ran away to the circus, had a penchant for being an entertainer. When did he first start practicing magic? And then I guess maybe it'd be useful to talk about, like, what was the state of magic when Houdini started to get into the business? Well, there were magicians. Obviously, this was long, long, long before television or radio or or movies or anything. So, you know, these were these were magicians who would go from town to town and perform some of them on on you know very small stages. There were a few fairly big stage magicians. As best we can tell, it was in New York that Houdini started to get interested in magic. And this was after he ran away from home. Uh, perhaps try to join the circus. We don't know exactly what the running away from home thing was about. Even Houdini would say that he didn't even remember exactly what his motivations were. But after running away from home, he ended up in New York and his father joined him there. And he worked in a, a factory that created neckties. 
And that was really when it seems like he fell in love with magic, probably through the reading of a book by the guy who would end up being his hero and also, in many ways, his nemesis, Robert Houdin, who is even now widely called the father of magic. And Robert Houdin was this uh, magician. He was gone by the time that uh, that Houdini was uh, was reading his uh, autobiography. But he was this very, very famous stage magician who, to this day, gets credit for so many things uh, – that magicians still do, you know, dressing, dressing up in, in, you know, evening clothes, tuxedos, that kind of thing, you know, creating various kinds of stage magic. And Houdini read this biography and it, it clearly did have an enormous impact on his life. And he was probably at that point interested enough in magic that he was doing a few things. He had a friend within the necktie factory who also liked magic and after they read the book, both of them read the, this autobiography, they decided to create a magic act that they would try to try to make a living doing magic in small shows in various places. And because, you know, and I, I'm sure we'll come back to the name, but they named themselves after Robert Houdin. They thought it was pronounced Houdin. They added an I to the end of his name, thinking that I would make a... Uh, there, there, there are different reasons that uh, that have been given for why they added the I. Some said it's because you know they wanted to make it sound exotic, and some thought an I in Italian means it's somebody you want to be like. And they they call themselves the Houdini brothers, and uh, and of course his name was Eric Weiss. They called him Airy, so he changed that and Americanized that to Harry, and that's how he became Harry Houdini. And the, the name interesting is interesting because Houdini, it's something about the name. It's like it, you always remember it. Like it's hard to forget. What do you yeah. think is going on there? It's just it's it's just the perfect magic name. I mean, it, you know, I, I don't think a couple of kids at the time fully appreciated. I, I think the name is a very very big part of the success that he would have. I, it's it really is an unforgettable name. There's something mystical about it. Something exotic and foreign a little bit about it but yet it's it's you know it's not like you see it and have trouble pronouncing it or anything it's 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 always there and i think it was a big part and you know as as the years would go on he would fight for the name a little bit he he actually had to tear away the name from his friend who who might have been the one who actually came up with it they actually had a big fight over the name and uh, and then other people would start using some version of that name you know people who were who were imitators of Houdini would call themselves various other things that sounded like Houdini and so the name was just always a very very big part of of who he was and and I do think that you know you look back at some of these incredible magicians of the time who were you know probably just as popular as he was but something about their names you know just doesn't quite carry through the years the way the name Houdini does. So he started this act with his buddy, they're the Houdini brothers. Did they, was there an act that put them on the map and kind of put Harry Houdini on the path to becoming, you know, who he is today? Well, the, the answer is yes and no. I mean, they were not very successful and soon the friend left because they were not successful. And then Houdini's own brother joined the act. The, the, his friend's brother joined the act. And eventually Bess, who even before 
she ended up being his wife, joined the act. So so numerous different people tried to be the Houdini brothers or the Houdini act, or later on it was just Harry Houdini and and assistant, whatever, whatever the case may be. But with with the the act itself, it was not very successful. But there were already signs of it becoming successful and signs of Houdini what Houdini would become as the years went on. And and my favorite of those was this one act that he called Metamorphosis. And Metamorphosis was, you know, it, it, it can be fairly easy explained. Somebody is essentially tied up and put, you know, all sorts of handcuffs and, and rope and, and tied up and locked up. And at the beginning, this was Houdini's assistant who was tied up. But, but as the act went on, Houdini realized that he needed to be the one who was tied up, which is obviously a very big part of what Houdini would become. But he would get tied up, and then they would put him inside of a of a giant bag with a drawstring at the top. They would tie the drawstring. Sometimes Houdini would wear would ask somebody in the crowd to wear a, if he could wear his jacket. So he would put on a, a stranger's jacket before getting tied up. And then they would put this bag uh, with with the tied up Houdini inside of a of a chest, a magic chest. They would lock that chest on many different sides, obviously always showing that there was no possible way to escape. And then the assistant, originally his friend, later his wife, would say to the crowd, okay, watch the effect. It's going to happen fast. It's going to happen in the count of three. And she would count one, two, and she would lift up this curtain that they had. And then Houdini would say three and pull down the curtain and he was out. And, and, you know, of course, this was, this was a, a very fun act, but the best part of it was that at that point they would then unlock the chest, which of course took time to do all of this. And then they would pull down the bag and there would be his wife in all the ropes, in all the handcuffs, wearing the stranger's jacket. So that was, that was metamorphosis. And it was not necessarily a new Act. I mean, it really borrowed from a lot of different things that had already been out there, but they made it new. He made it new. He made it because if it was so fast and it was so shocking to to see on the count of three, there's Harry Houdini, you know, already out of this uh, out of this chest. Uh, the speed of it was was a, such a big part of it, and people liked it, and and he did get some very good reviews for it, but it it really did not lead to success. It just led him on the path. That eventually led him to success. Right. So that prefigures that that trick metamorphosis prefigures what he became famous for, and that was being an escape artist. And I think people they often associate escape artistry with magic because Houdini was considered a magician, but they're they're kind of separate genres. So first, like how did he make that transition from magic to escape artistry? And you know, what was his first escape trick? Well, he always blended the two, particularly in his younger days. He wanted to be a magician. He didn't necessarily, you know, later on he would he would say, oh, you know, magicians are a dime a dozen, but escape artists are, you know, the, the rare, this rare thing. But that's not how he wanted to be. And, and really all of his life, he was utterly fascinated with magic. And by magic, we're talking about card tricks. We're talking about illusions. We're talking about, you know, levitation or, or you know, making something appear or disappear. He was always in love with those sorts of things and would, would do magic throughout his life. And, you know, there might have been a little resentment later in life, not certainly when he was at the top of his game, but later in life that people 
didn't appreciate him as a magician as much as they appreciated him uh, as an escape artist. But he always had this escape part of his of his act. And when he was very young, he came upon this idea of going whatever town he was in, and these were usually at that, at that time very, very small towns, most of them in the Northeast. He would, before the, the show, he would go to the local jail and ask them to allow him to put him in handcuffs and put him in a jail cell and see if he could escape. And he would try to bring reporters out there. And, and this was, you know, I've said many times, this is long before social media. So this was the original, you know, Instagram. This was the original, uh, you know, Snapchat, where you're you're essentially trying to reach out to lots and lots of people through uh, some sort of, uh, you know, really, I think, kind of a TikTok stunt, right? I mean, this is what he tried to do, trying to escape from these jails. And and they let him do it. You know, not everybody, but but a lot of these places were intrigued enough by the idea that they let him do it. He was always successful, at least in the early days. And so that was a big part of his act. And, you know, it, it, was, it was separate from the magic that he was doing, but he saw it all as one thing in, in those days. Later, you know, after many years of failure for him, he came to realize that, you know, as much as he loved the magic, it was really the escape artistry that was uh, that was his calling card. And, and that was the thing that was going to make him world famous. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I've wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. 
Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. Why do you think the escape artistry was like so appealing? To, like, why, why were people drawn to it? Why, why did it become such a huge phenomenon? I think, there, you know, at different stages of his career, I think the reason is a little bit different. I think early on, the notion of escape to this day is so powerful in our minds. I mean, this is, you know, I, I know we'll get to this point of the answer to my question, which is why does Houdini still last? Why do we, why do we still care about him? And I think the reason, one of those reasons is that we're just as fascinated by impossible escapes now as we ever were. And, and, you know, you can see that proof every single day when you look at a newspaper somewhere in the world there is a dog that gets out of a yard and nobody knows why, or there is a a person who escapes from prison and nobody knows how, and and those people inevitably are called Houdini in you know in the in the papers in my world of sports Houdini is a, a you know constantly being you know used for a quarterback who gets out of uh, you know an impossible situation or a pitcher who gets out of a bases loaded jam we we, we call them Houdini and so. I think that infatuation that we have, that fascination that we have with escape was always a big part for him. Later, he was also cheating death. So it was this combination, not only of escape, which was, you know, the thing that that really drove his early success, 
And later it was, you know, him being underwater, him being, you know, in a, a dangerous place, getting buried alive. I mean, this was suddenly this thing became about cheating death. And and that took him to an entirely different level. And the other thing, too, I thought was interesting, the distinction between magic and escape artistry. Magic, it's supposed to look effortless, painless. But Houdini realized what people want to see is like physical struggle. And he made his acts like it was very physical. And he's it's kind of I think it ties in with your sports writing. He, it was almost an athletic event. Like he was yeah. trying to show that he was really, really working hard. It wasn't magic. It was like Houdini physically try, escaping from this stuff. No, that's 100% right. I found so many sports analogies. You know, he was an athlete when he was young. He was a boxer. He was a swimmer. He was a runner. You know, had life been different for him, he might have gone uh, into an athletic path. So he was an athlete. And I've, I believe, and maybe, you know, I've talked to people in magic about this, and, and some of them have said, yeah, you know, that's just the sports writer and you talking. But I believe that so much of what made Houdini successful was this athletic, not just the athletic prowess that he had, but this athletic mindset that he had. The earliest, you know, when once Houdini became famous, so he this really happened right at the turn of the century, 1899, 1900, once he went to, to Europe, this is when he became famous. And for, you know, five to 10 years of his fame, his most famous elements of his magic were challenges. People would challenge him to get out of something that they created, whether it was handcuffs they invented or a box that they built or a, or a you know, an envelope, uh, a football. Every single night, he would take on these challenges and he would always escape. He would always win. And, and this was the this was the act. I mean, this was this was at the heart of it. And and it was a different show every night because it was a different challenge every night. That feels like sports to me. I mean, that feels like, hey, I'm the I'm the world heavyweight champion. Uh, come out every any night and and try to beat me. And you know, so I I really do feel like that so much of the escape stuff, particularly the stuff when he was accepting challenges, really is directly related to sports. The the other thing that that you said, the original name of the book, at least in my mind, was the amazing and the impossible. That was that was what I was going to call the book. Nobody liked it because it doesn't have Houdini's name in it. It doesn't really make sense if you don't if you don't know the context. But it comes from a quote from a magician who I, we were talking, and I said to him, you know, something about Houdini, and he said, you know, Houdini was not a, a magician; he was an escape artist, exactly like what you said. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, magic is doing the impossible. There is no possible way that you can make, you know, even the smallest version, you can make that coin disappear. You can make that card, you know, show up in my pocket. Even the simplest, it's impossible. And what Houdini did was not impossible. It was escaping from these, from these different, you know, challenges, but it wasn't impossible. It was, it was different. And I said, well, I guess that's true, but you know, look, this guy escaped from, you know, uh, they would throw him in the water inside of inside of caskets and and bury him alive and 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 do all of these other things. I mean that feels pretty impossible. And he said, "No, that's the difference. That's amazing, but it's not impossible." And I think that's the difference between you know sort of this escape thing that Houdini made you know world famous and magic is is that 
it, it's amazing what Houdini did when he did escapes, but you wouldn't say it was impossible. You know, speaking to the athleticism of Houdini, you had a picture in the book of him like in a, a swimsuit. It's a singlet basically and chained up. And his legs are just huge. Like they're just, oh, yeah. it looks like he like, he's, he squats every day. <laughs> Super muscular. I mean, just, you know, he was, he was a small man in height, but he was so powerful and so flexible in order to do many of these escapes. He had to, he had to get himself in these, in these crazy positions but he was he was very very powerful. He used to go around. Uh, speaking of challenges, he loved challenges of any kind. He would take on challenges. He used to have this one challenge where he would see somebody reading a mystery, and he would say, "Tell me, like, read me a paragraph from three places in the book, and I'll tell you who the murderer is." Like he 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 was he lives for challenges. And one of the challenges was that he would go up to people and he would say, "Let's." Let's see who has bigger biceps. I mean, this was like this was like a, a point of pride for him. So he was he was yeah he was absolutely a very very powerful guy. And in some of these challenges too, he would do naked. Like he'd go to a jail and like I'll strip my clothes and you can search me and I'll do this escape act in the buff. And yeah, even back then people were like this is pretty weird. Uh, and even Houdini, he was kind of a prude. Like he wasn't, but he was willing to do that. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it just shows you the ambition of Houdini. I mean, he. It came across the idea at one point somebody had had said, "Well, he's just hiding keys." You know, I mean, I'm sure more than one person said that he's just hiding them. And he said, "I, I, I'm not hiding them, and I can prove it. I would, I would do an escape in, in naked. I, I absolutely, there, I am not hiding any keys." And at some point, the challenge came, and and he did it naked, and then he realized that this was. This was something that that uh, yeah there was there was a it's weird but there was a real power to him doing these these escapes naked so he he went to a, a photo studio in St Louis and took photos of himself in chains this is the ones that people have undoubtedly seen they're they're some of the most famous photos in American pop culture history uh, of him in chains basically just wearing a you know just a bathing suit of some kind he's he's almost entirely naked and. And this is what he would do. Uh, he would always, he would always say, "Okay, I'm just strip me down." And and you know because he knew that whatever his secrets were, they did not have anything to do with him hiding a key in a pocket or something like that. I mean, he he had his own methods, and so he was he was willing to do whatever it was taken. And, and it was, you know, he he was not opposed, even though he was a prude, he was not opposed to being a little bit scandalous if it meant getting a bigger audience. So he had a lot of famous escape acts. He had the, you know, just basically handcuffs. There's a lot of handcuffs challenges that are really famous. Right. What was like the, his most famous escape act? And do we still know, do we know how he did it? Well, there, there, there are a couple uh, of escape acts that in my mind are the most famous. I mean, I think most people would tell you that the most famous escape for him was the water torture cell, which he invented and essentially he would be, you know, taken by the ankles, he'd be put in, you know, strapped in, lifted up and dropped upside down into a tank filled with water. And then they would lock the top of it and Houdini would escape from this, from this water torture cell. And, and that was his most famous. It is the one that you still see people do some version of today. And the the answer is we kind of do know how he did it. I don't really 
write about that. I mean, I do mention something in the book that might interest people about that, but we kind of know how he did it. The, the one that interested me the most as I was writing about this book is a very famous escape. It's it's just a pure handcuff escape, but a very famous escape called the Mirror Cuffs, which uh, was more than, a, you know, much more than 100 years ago. It was 1906 or 1904. And Essentially, these were handcuffs that were brought to him by the Daily Mirror, the the newspaper in in London, and they were supposedly built by this this great locksmith who had spent five years trying to build the most inescapable handcuffs ever built. And there's a it's a very very famous story about him wanting you know trying to refuse the challenge. But then, of course, accepting it and going on stage and and him being on stage for essentially an hour and a half, you know, doing various different things and and keeps he keeps coming out. You know, he was he used to do all of his escapes behind a curtain or inside something he would call a little a little ghost house. He had like a little a little place on stage so people couldn't see him. And three or four times during this act, he came out and people cheered, but he wasn't out of of the cuffs he he you know came out once to ask for a pillow and he came out once saying he needed light and anyway it was it was a very involved escape and eventually he gets out and the place goes absolutely crazy and it's you know it, it might be the most famous escape in magic history and that one is super cool because we don't know how he did it i mean we there are many many people that have come up with theories about it including me but we don't know for sure. And we never will know for sure. And Houdini himself never told anybody or, or, or if he did, it, it was, uh, it was uh, something that he told them to keep uh, secret to their, to the grave. One of my favorite little stories about the Miracuffs, which still exist. Uh, they, you can still, you, you can't see them because David Copperfield has them in his museum in Las Vegas, which is not open to the public, but it is open to researchers. A few people have, have been there. I was there. I got to see it. They're, they're, it's it's incredibly cool, but there's a very famous story about them that his wife got the mirror cuffs after after he was gone, and a magician came over and said, "Oh, there are the mirror cuffs. Can I open them?" And she said, "No, nobody ever opens them. They they are never to be opened." And, and so so I've always loved that. That's that to me is really cool that there's still this mystery from more than a hundred years ago that still exists today. So one of the themes that you see throughout your book, and I think you did a good did a good job capturing is the ambition of Harry Houdini. And this guy, he was making money hand over fist, one of the most famous people in the world, but yet he lived a really modest lifestyle. You know, people described him as dressing like a bum. His yeah. taste in food were really simple. So if it wasn't money, what was driving Houdini his entire life? Well, what's interesting is he was interested in money, but not interested in it for money's sake. He just wanted to be the highest paid. That was incredibly important to him, and he had terrible fights with promoters throughout his life because he felt like they were cheating him. They weren't giving Houdini his 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 fair his fair due. So he wanted money, but he didn't care for money. He wanted fame, and, and because that's how it related to money. And so his ambition for fame was, you know, it was utterly insatiable. There there was no. There was no amount of fame that he could get that was enough. And and not only that, there was no amount of fame he could reach where he didn't have a constant and persistent fear that he was going to lose it. 
I mean, this was this was his his thing, and 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 so you know he would he, he would he, when he had his money, he would spend so much of it on promoting himself. That was that was where so much of his money went. He also spent a lot of money on magic books, magic tricks. He was a he was a tremendous collector. Not only of magic, but mostly of magic, but also other things. He was always a, a scrapbook keeper. It's kind of a interesting elements of of him as uh, as a, a little bit of a of an amateur historian. But most of the money he would spend, he would spend on on making sure that he was even more famous next week. And and so he would he was constantly you know out there trying to get reporters to do more things about him. He was constantly creating new and scarier illusions to try to to try to get more famous. He went into the movies very early on in the silent film stage to try to get more famous. That I think that was his I wouldn't say maybe it was. I I was going to say I wouldn't say that it's the only thing, but maybe it was. He had a singular ambition for fame. And I don't know I guess there are people that we could think of that are like that now, but uh there's no question that what he wanted was for everybody to not only know Harry Houdini, but respect him and admire him and and think of him as the greatest in whatever field he was in. Yeah, so he kind of, he's, he did a lot to contribute to sort of the celebrity culture that we have today. In yeah. America. Yeah. And this kind of ties in too with what, you know, the Babe Ruth connection, because Babe Ruth, one of the reasons like we know so much about him is that he had, you know, PR people who created this persona of the Babe and Houdini did something similar, but he did it himself. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, it's it's really interesting because Babe Ruth did not really engineer his own fame. It was really the sports writers who right. did. And they did it because they loved the story, you know? They loved the Babe and loved the story and 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 it it, it made so much sense for them. You know, they were out there trying to 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 make a living as well and and people ate up Babe Ruth stories. So so that was a big part but you're right with Houdini it was all self-driven. I mean as as the years went on after his death there have been many many people who have picked up the uh you know picked up the banner and of course that's a very big part of my book is writing about all of these people who have been fascinated by Houdini through the years. But when he was alive that was him literally you know sending his clips to every newspaper in the country making sure that he had advanced people in every town that would be able to tell him you know how he was going to break through in Boston or Washington or Philadelphia or New York or wherever he was going and and so yeah he was it was really self-driven for him so something that happened later on in his career is he got into the business of debunking spiritualist. Yes. For those who aren't familiar with spiritualism, can you give us sort of a brief summary of the movement and then talk about Houdini's involvement? Because he, at one point early on in his career, he did he dabbled in spiritualism. He did. He did. The, the spiritualist movement is is really fascinating, and and you know there are many other books, and I would recommend if people are interested in it. There, it's very very interesting. I give a very brief but hopefully interesting uh you know exp- explainer of how spiritualism came about it basically began with these sisters who claimed that they could talk to the spirit in their home and and you know they would do it through a series of knocks 
where they would ask questions and and this spirit would respond with various knocks and and eventually they created a whole code and and a way for for the uh, for the spirit to 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 actually talk to them and in through these you know however many knocks they did or the pattern of the knocks and and this created a quite a phenomenon in in this is you know well before Houdini 20 30 40 years uh, before he was even born but this this spiritualism is really what led directly to to much of what Houdini did as an escape artist, which is a whole other element of this thing that's kind of fun. This the idea of escaping from uh, ropes and boxes and this sort of thing actually began with spiritualism and shows that were not about escape, but more about trying to prove that spirits were with them when there was actually these people who had escaped from ropes and were actually doing the work themselves. Anyway. This led to a huge movement, and obviously there's long been and always will be, I suppose, this fascination of can we reach out to to those we have lost? Can we reach out to the to the dead? And and spiritualism was particularly powerful after traumatic, tragic events. I mean, it was uh, after World War One, which is when Houdini really was out there debunking it. It, it had it had found a new life. It had found a new life at a big life after the Civil War, which is which is when it really started to become so big in America. So Houdini, when he was very young and a performer with his wife, he actually did a little bit of you know these seances where he would have claimed to be able to talk to these people's uh you know rel- dead relatives and and ask them questions and and you know he 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 was quite good at it uh because because he would he would walk through cemeteries and learn secrets and talk to people in town and and find out things that he supposedly could never know he was very good at that but he hated it even from the very start he felt like he was he was this was he was he was always fine with fooling people. He was always fine with with uh, convincing people something that wasn't true, but it had to be to entertain. It had to be a, a positive thing, and and he felt like this was really taking advantage of people in pain, and so he really hated it. And then after his mother passed away, through a through a long series of of, of different things, it eventually led to him saying not only did he did he hate it and would never take part of it, but he felt like it was his responsibility to unmask all of these people, show how they did it, and prove that spiritualism did not exist. It became a huge part of his of his show. It it became a big part of his life. He actually spoke to Congress at one point about it. I mean it was it was a very big part of of the last few years of Harry Houdini. In, in typical Harry Houdini fashion, not only like yeah he was definitely righteous about it. Like he definitely was sincere about it, but this also helped his Fame and celebrity, right? Yeah, well, and that's the interesting thing uh, when you look at Houdini's career. Whenever he needed something so he could get back on top, he found it, you know? And and so when the Escape Act started to lose a little bit of the audience, he really created this, this idea of death and danger in his act. And when that started to fade a little bit, although that never fully faded, but when it started to fade a little bit, he, you know, he really did not have the success he wanted in the movies. This spiritualism thing, I think you said it exactly right. I think it was very legitimate. It was, it was not an act. He wasn't doing it just to be famous, but it did make him famous again. And and there's no question he he liked playing that up. So yeah, he was 
He was somebody who I think always did follow where his instincts took him, but he those instincts also always took to putting him back on top in the entertainment world. All right, so Houdini, uh, I think people know how he dies. It's sort of a myth or this sort of well-worn story. He take part in a challenge. Uh, some guys that I heard you, you let anyone sock you in the stomach as hard as they can. <laughs> right. And he gets punched in the stomach, wasn't ready for it. And then a you know, couple days later, he dies from the punch. I mean, is that, what, do, we, do we know if like that, the punch is what did him in or was there some sort of underlying cause that the punch may have exacerbated? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more on that line. I think he already uh, had appendicitis and was already, you know, quite ill when, when the punch happened. But I do think it exacerbated it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really quickly afterward. And so when people say, did the punch kill him? My answer is sort of yes, but not because I think it created the paranitis that eventually killed him. But I think he was so embarrassed by the fact that somebody's punch could create pain that he simply refused to get treatment. If he had gotten treatment afterward, he would he would have even even in those days with the medical knowledge they had then, they would have removed his appendix and he would have been okay. But he refused. He kept at, he kept performing and like you say it was 5 5 6 days later he was in Detroit and he was gone, you know. So so it was I I don't think the punch itself created the you know thing that killed him, but I do think the punch was a very very big part of his death. But how do you think the way he died? How did that influence his legacy? Well, there's no question it it had a huge influence. I mean, he died young. I mean, that's always you know that's the James Dean you know theory. I think right that, that dying young is is always going to sort of push the legacy. He died on Halloween. That's you know that's there's something powerful about that. He died at a time when he was doing all of this spiritualism debunking. So death was so much a part of who he was anyway. And so it was, I think his death was a very, very big part of, of why he lived on. And, you know, the to me, the biggest part of why he lived on is because his wife, Bess, wouldn't let him die. I mean, she she basically spent the next 20 years after his death or more promoting Harry Houdini and and uh, eventually getting a movie made about him uh, with Tony Curtis that gave him an all new life in in the 1950s. So so I think that's the biggest reason but yeah, you know, dying in a weird way on Halloween when he was young and and sort of still in his prime was was definitely a big part of of why he still matters. So in this book, you talked to magicians today who all of them said at one point, like Houdini was the, the guy that got them into magic. They right. saw, uh, they read a Houdini book when they were a kid. They saw a Houdini poster and they're like, that's what I'm going to do. But they, all of them kind of concurred that Houdini wasn't much a ma- magician. He was okay. There were, uh, there were better magicians, sure. but nonetheless, Houdini is still this archetypal magician. So how did this sort of okay magician become the archetypal magician? Well, you know, I I like what my friend magician Joshua J says. He he said, you know, is is Bob Dylan the greatest, you know, performer, songwriter ever? I mean, you you could argue maybe he is. You could argue maybe he isn't. But there's no question that the times were perfect for him. You know, coming up in the 60s exactly at that time in that world when he could have that sort of stage was a big part of why 
Bob Dylan became, you know, something larger than life. And and his argument is Houdini had the same thing, that that he he came along at exactly the right time. What he did, the escapes that he did, made him, you know, had him stand out. Even at a time where there were better magicians, there was nobody who was Houdini. There was nobody who took up all the oxygen that Houdini did. And the way he spoke to people, you know, the way his his act spoke to people was different. You know, there were there were other people who were who were you know very famous magicians, but that's what they were. And Houdini was not as easy to classify. So I think that's a big part of it. The thing I find utterly fascinating and interesting is that so many of these magicians, exactly as you say, you know, somewhere very very early on in the process of them realizing that they that they were in love with this idea of creating magic, creating wonder. Every one of them, just about, at some point very early on, came upon Houdini because he is the most famous magician even now. So they came upon him, they came to understand him, and they he was part of their journey into magic. Every one of them, I think, would, would say that somewhere along the way Houdini was their was their but then as they get on in magic, they come to realize that, like laymen, which is what they call the rest of us, we're the we're the muggles, right? The ones that that don't uh, that don't know anything about magic. We all just think Houdini was the greatest everything, you know. I mean, the average person thinks Houdini was the greatest magician because he's the one magician you've heard of. So there's a little resentment that comes along from this, you know. There's a resentment, and and you know, so I I got a lot of. People uh, in magic who said, "Ah, he was—he was not only not a particularly good magician; he was a terrible magician." I mean, there, there, there are those that think he was—he was actually a hack when it came to to doing card tricks or doing uh, various other illusions, and that he was not a magician at all; that he was a stuntman. And 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 there's a real resentment that builds up, and I think that's just inevitable when you're the biggest and you're the most famous, and 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 people just attach everything in magic to a certain person the way that I think people do with magic and Houdini. Uh, I think that resentment is absolutely natural. And why do you think Houdini still captivate people today? Like and you talk, in the beginning of the book, I love you just like re, just count all the things that are named after Houdini yeah. in the popular culture. Why is that? Well, I, I think there are, you know, a bunch of different reasons. Some that we've already gone over the name and, and the, the way he died and, and, the fact that he was such a larger-than-life figure, the, the myth that he created, the way that we appreciate escape even now, and 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 find ourselves enthralled by by the idea of escape. But I, I think that there's something that is sort of people like there are not a lot. I mean, there are. I don't want to say that it's it's not a big community. There is a community of people in America that love magic, right? But I think there are lots of people who like it, like magic. They, they're they're not huge magic fans, but they they'll see magic on America's Got Talent, or or they'll they'll you know see a magician perform at their at their kid's uh, birthday party or something, and they're like, "This is fun, right? This is this is interesting and fun." And if you see a good magician. You don't you don't appreciate that it really is an art form. I mean, at the at the highest levels, it's it's an extraordinary art. But you don't realize that you're you're just watching it. It's just fun. It's just fun stuff. And so, because I think so many people are drawn to that fun, Houdini's the guy, 
And so, I mean, if you're if you're interested in magic, if you're a kid and you're interested in magic, the book in your school library is going to be about Houdini. And the the first person somebody's going to say to you, you're going to say, "Oh, you know what? Magic is kind of cool. What's what's the story with magic?" They're going to be like, "Oh, well, let me tell you about Harry Houdini. He he reached a, a level, I think, that makes him sort of synonymous with magic for so many people. And I know there are lots of people in magic who are not. They don't love that. They wish that uh, that some of the other great magicians would get their say. And and there are a lot of great magicians today. Uh, you know, some that people know. I mean, uh, Penn and Teller and and David Copperfield and David Blaine. And there are a few that people know. And there are a bunch who are just extraordinary artists who do things that Houdini could never have dreamed of doing, who are completely or, or virtually unknown. And and I think that that that's just sort of how it has to be. I think magic is is something it's a it's it is a world all its own but I think that for people who are who are just intrigued by it who are just interested by it which is kind of everybody or most people I know have at least some connection you know their 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 uncle did magic tricks or something they have some connection to magic and for them it will always be Houdini I mean he's that's that's just where Houdini placed himself well, Joe, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, the book they should be able to find everywhere, I hope. It's called The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. And I think it is, you know, uh, you can get the paperback, you can get the hardcover, you can get the audio book, which is, which is really good. I didn't read it. So it's, it's, really, it's really good. As far as my work goes, I've got a, a book coming out this fall called the Baseball 100, where uh, I went back to my world of sports and did a countdown of the 100 greatest baseball players ever. It is uh, mammoth. It is 300,000 words. It is uh, this mammoth book as I tell the stories of these 100 players and hopefully tell the history of baseball through these 100 players. I'm online. I'm on Twitter at Jay Posnansky, and, and uh, I'm a senior writer for The Athletic, so you can uh, find me there as well. I'm I'm around. I'm around, I think. All right. Well, Joe Posnatsky, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I guess it was Joe Posnatsky. He's the author of the book, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, joeposnansky.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Houdini, where you can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you'd think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you on their list they went podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. 
because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.